0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Allahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Allahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Allahato Sama Sambuddhasa Bodhang Sanghang Namassami. Uh, For this evening's Dhamma talk, which if I'm recollecting accurately, it's the fourth of this year's Rains Retreat, I wanted to talk about effort, just the right effort, the balanced effort, uh, bringing in the idipadas, the roads or the paths to uh, achieving, to success, but also balancing that with the third noble truth of letting go. And to answer the question which was asked of me on Monday night, a very excellent question, about what is actually the what should you do? When should you so just be content and when should you strive? And (coughs) I wish to talk about the, the balancing of effort which leads to success on the on the path when, especially at this time of a retreat period, uh, when uh, three or four weeks have passed by and uh, when many of you are settling down, some of you have uh, had to do some work and won't be settled down yet, but still we come across the uh, conundrum of exactly how much effort should we put in, should we strive very hard Or would that just be creating tension and negativity in the mind? Or should we just let go and end up just sleeping too much or being sloppy? And it is (coughs) a very fine point to find out just that right amount of striving, that right amount of effort and the right amount of letting go, but more importantly, where to focus the effort and where to focus the letting go. In particular, that I gave the the brief advice, is that one should strive to be mindful, to be fully aware, to have the sati sampajanya, which the Kubarajan in Thailand, the great teachers there would speak about over and over again, sati sampajanya, or sometimes they would use the word satipanya, just the mindfulness and wisdom to be able to strive to arouse that wakefulness as long as you can, to strive to arouse that (coughs) gatekeeper, the one which guards the mind, and which knows which sorts of thoughts, moods, tendencies to allow to go into the mind and to grow there and to develop. That is the job of the, the gatekeeper mindfulness and wisdom. And where we have to let go, uh, have contentment, is have contentment in order to overcome the doer, the controller, the one who's the the judger and the criticiser of all of this. Uh, Because that is the place where much of the suffering arises. So the brief advice was to let go, abandon the doer, through the practice of contentment, but put forth effort to be uh, mindful, to be awake, to be aware. And that was the answer which I gave. And when you consider that answer, you consider that it's in line with the last words of the Buddha, Appamardena, Sampadeta, in the sense of Appamardena, is don't be (coughs) uh, heedless in the way that you look after and guard your mind. To make sure that you don't either get lost in the the dullness of uh, sloth and torpor or the sheer confusion of restlessness and worry. Sloth and torpor is where the gatekeeper just falls completely asleep, where they're blind and just don't notice anyone coming in or going out. The restlessness and worry is where the gatekeeper is just so confused. There's so many people coming and going and it's just so much. They can't make head nor tail of anything. There's the confusion caused by restlessness and worry. So we have to use that mindfulness and to strive to arouse that mindfulness in order to have a very strong gatekeeper, in order to be able to have a supervisor which looks over the mind. and Developing that supervisor which looks over the mind should be something we strive to do throughout the day. It's not so much of what the supervisor is watching, that as long as the supervisor is there. Because <coughs> we have to understand that the natural process, which I keep on stressing, is a process which will, from time to time, meet with the defilements, where the kilesas, the the fetters, the negative tendencies of the mind will arise and will dominate the mind. And sometimes we have to know what to do with those negative tendencies, whether it's ill will or whether it's guilt or whether it's despair, whether it's a fault-finding mind or whatever. We have to know what to do with those. As long as we have striven to get the mindfulness there, that at least we know what's going on, we have a supervisor and we have clear knowledge of what the problem is, only then can we actually uh, find a solution. So often that the defilements hold sway over the mind. They killays us, they just ruin our reputation and they make us say and do things which we regret afterwards. And why is that? it is because that the mindfulness was not there when these defilements first came up. So often if we strive to be mindful it's like that gatekeeper being so clear in, the, in their vision they see the enemy coming from a distance, they don't need, even need to stop them at the gate, they can close the gate well before the enemy comes near. You can very easily close the gate of the mind before lust, Greed, desire, jealousy, envy, ill will, revenge before any of that actually comes into the mind, only if you striven to arouse mindfulness. So how do you actually strive to arouse this mindfulness? <coughs> you strive to arouse this mindfulness through the interest which you give to this path. A person who's interested in what they're doing will have a natural mindfulness. In the same way that a child interested in the world which it first meets, they've got so much interest that it's actually really looking and considering. Sometimes that because we think we know, that we don't look very deeply at what's happening. The mindfulness stops because of the illusion of knowledge the illusion I don't need to really supervise, everything's all right. The interest there has to be an interest to actually see and also has to be an interest which enjoys what it sees. That's one of the reasons why in this monastery I continually stress a happy path, a path in which you deliberately find happiness and joy in what you're doing. A path in which <coughs> one can use uh, perception based on wisdom to see the use and the purpose and the benefits in whatever you are called upon to do or whatever you have to experience. Even when there's sickness and suffering in the body there is still a way in which you can use that experience to grow in wisdom, to grow in, in uh, liberation it comes to my mind now, because I was talking about this to someone recently, when I went to stay with Tanajan Mahabura for a short time, many years ago, that after I arrived he called a meeting and to give a talk. And the talk which he gave, which he specifically asked, um, Tan Panyananda, sorry, Tan Panyuwada to translate specifically for my benefit. Actually I could understand Thai very well, but uh, I listened to the translation as well. The main thrust of the talk was a story of Tanajan Mahabua uh, when he was a disciple with Ajahn Man and in this story that uh, in those days, it wasn't Ajahn Mahabur, it was Mahabur, just a young monk. <coughs> and he got a, a fever, most, poss- most probably malaria. And he was sick with that fever in his hut, with very high temperatures. But instead of, <coughs> instead of just uh, resting, that, uh, the Mahabur of those days, and got out of his hut, struggled with his sickness and took up a broom to try and sweep what everyone else was sweeping to join in the work. He wasn't going to submit to his illness. When Ajahn Man saw him he sent him back to his hut called a meeting later that evening in which he invited his uh, stubborn disciple Mahabhura later to learn the lesson and become a great teacher summoned him to the the meeting. And there Ajahn Man gave a a stinging discourse. And Ajahn Mahabur was repeating this. And the discourse was, he said, some monks were boxers before and they just have not changed. They just want to fight and fight and fight. And Ajahn Man said, that's not the way of a Buddhist meditator practitioner. He actually said that's the way of the Hindu yogis. (coughs) But it certainly was not the way of the Buddhist practitioner. He said the Buddhist practitioner, the disciple of the Buddha in such a situation should not fight the sickness but should contemplate it. Should learn from it. Should understand it. Not fight but learn and understand. And that's a A powerful teaching. I always remember that because basically Ajahn Mahabur, when he was teaching this, was telling a time from his youth when he was stupid. A time (coughs) when he didn't really know the path. And he was teaching this out of compassion so that many others would not make the same mistake. (coughs) When there is that sickness, that illness there, Isn't it the case that so often the striving which we do is a striving to overcome that sickness, to get rid of it, to beat it, so that we're not sick anymore. And When I put it that way you can see just what a futile striving that is. All you can do with your sickness is to put it off for a while and it will come back again later. Old age, sickness and death is our heritage as human beings. The opposite of old age, sickness and death as I've been saying to many people is the three intoxications of youth, health and life. We call them intoxications because (laughs) they make us crazy thinking that once we're young we'll always be young. Once we're healthy we'll always be healthy. Once we're alive we'll always be alive. They blind us in the same way intoxicants blind us to the truth. that these things are just temporary, they don't last long and they will always fade into old age, sickness and death. Sometimes we can feel sorry for ourselves, I'm sick and no one else is sick. Why me? And sometimes that, that self-view, self-pity can lead you into a great deal of despair. Every one of us goes through sicknesses from time to time. Every one of us has to, <laughs> to bear with these things. If we haven't yet, we will soon. And The point is that they offer the opportunity to strive for mindfulness which does not try to control, to get rid of, to to manipulate but only just strives to contemplate, to know the truth of sickness. Why is it that sickness is painful? Why is it that can lead to despair, to ill will, to such negativity? Why do I allow, as the Buddha asks you not to, why do I allow my mind to be sick when my body is sick? This is a (coughs) a powerful teaching which needs to be realized. When you strive for mindfulness, rather than striving for control. You can actually learn how to be content with your sickness. I was mentioning to somebody recently during one of the interviews or something or i forget now which, I've noticed that people who do have uh, serious accidents who lose the use of their limbs and become a paraplegic or a quadriplegic or become blind or whatever it is, is a serious injury to their body. They usually go through the stages of denying and anger and wanting to find some way of returning to what they remembered as being normal. Even when they're in great pain, which is a chronic pain, they want to go back to something they considered was normal. But after a while, and I think I remember the average time was six months or maybe longer, those people say who lose their limbs, (coughs) they come to a state of acceptance. They come to a state of learning to live with their disability rather than trying to overcome or get rid of their disability. Instead of controlling, manipulating, managing, they learn to be content and live life in spite of the problem. And that's with people in the world and this (coughs) is what we can do as long as we realise that the striving, the effort should be an understanding by having full mindfulness, full attention and letting go into contentment. And that's the same (coughs) whenever we practice any kamatana, any type of meditation practice. Our struggle should be to clearly know what we're doing, to have that mindfulness there, which is why that in the meditation techniques which I I teach, I really encourage the present moment awareness and the silence. The two factors which enhance the mindfulness of the present moment, the mindfulness of what's happening, the mindfulness of truth which is beyond thought. Not ultimate truth, but just the truth of what you're experiencing rather than the truth of what you think you are experiencing. Remember those two are very often very distinct. As you think is not what the thing actually is. You're interpreting, naming, selecting part of the experiencing and neglecting so much more. In silence you are much closer to truth. As it says in the Sapuri Sutta, whatever you think it is, whatever you imagine it to be, it is always otherwise powerful statement which I always keep in front of my mind, to undermine the thinking process, to doubt all my words and my thinking and instead (coughs) put more trust in what I'm experiencing, putting my mindfulness in what I trust in, putting my attention in that silence, in the present moment. Once I strive for that much, put forth effort to be mindful, from the time you wake up in the morning. Where am I, what am I feeling, what's this present moment? And develop the silence, present moment awareness from the very beginning. To strive to keep that mindfulness throughout the day, no matter what you are doing. You can keep mindfulness of the contents of your conscious experience in every moment with practice what it's like to get up in the morning, what it's like to brush your teeth, what it's like to go to the toilet, what it's like to go outside and walk in the cold of the early morning, what it's like to be late for breakfast or to be at breakfast or whatever else you're doing during the day and you have to do. If you can do this, you are creating the mindfulness, the clarity of mind, which you can keep throughout the whole day. I forget exactly <coughs> which Burmese monk it was, whether it was Sayadaw. I forget now, the monk who was uh, described in I think, Living Buddhist Masters, who became uh, interested, grew in faith in the Dhamma when he was a middle aged man <coughs> and being a poor villager, could not just leave his family and joined the Sangha. So he worked extra hard for a few years in order to save money, in order to make sure his wife and family were well set up so he could leave his family and join the Sangha in the knowledge that he had done his duties as a layperson. And after two or three years or five years, I forget which now, he did join the Sangha. And after only a very short time, an incredibly short time, I think it was only one year or two years at the most, he claimed to other monks that he had finished his task, that he was an arahat, perfectly enlightened. And the monks, the other monks could not really accept that such a young monk so quickly had gone to such a high attainment and they asked him what he had been doing. And They had found out in those years that he was working his fields, in those years when he was preparing for joining the Sangha, he had developed just that much, that degree of mindfulness in the moment, so that when he was plowing his fields, he'd be completely aware of the feeling of his hand on the plow in the moment. That's what he was striving for, all those years in preparation, striving to establish clear attention in the moment, silent with what he was doing. (coughs) With that sort of preparation, the monks in Burma acknowledged that even though he'd only just recently joined the Sangha, he'd been preparing the foundations for a long time before. And they accepted that with such a one, (coughs) enlightenment could happen. So by striving to develop that mindfulness, we are actually preparing the ground. So that when we sit on our meditation cushion, when we walk on the path or when we listen to a talk, our mind can be right there with what's being said. And it cannot blot out the meaning of the talk or the experience of meditation (coughs) with the clouding, cloaking, disturbing, distorting thought patterns of the mind which you should know are generated so often by the defilements. So in that silence, in that present moment awareness, we can actually attend to what's going on. (coughs) And when we attend to what's going on, you find that in just that much, there's a great deal of peace and contentment arise just by, by being mindful. But it's not sufficient contentment we have to develop that contentment more and more because even though our mindfulness, the striving to be present stops a lot of the doing and controlling and manipulating as you will notice from your contemplation that most of that doing, controlling, manipulating is all centered in the past or the future, mostly in the future (coughs) in the present moment, basically there's not much to do present moment is already arrived. You have to, as they say in the prisons, cop it sweet, because here it is. You cannot change it. What can you do with what's already arrived? Except just to know it and then let it go so you can attend to what's coming next. However, that just being in the present moment, that degree of mindfulness it's not sufficient yet, because there is still that restlessness of the mind, the doing of the mind, which still seeks for more and more experience, here and then there. That searcher, that scavenger in the realm of experience, which tries to collect little beads of happiness from here and from there. <coughs> and it's that scavenger, which creates the restlessness of the mind, which stops you coming to to the full stillness, the full inner samadhi of the jhanas. So this especially, having striven to arouse mindfulness, clarity, then you should then develop the contentment of the mind. (coughs) When you're watching the breath, just to develop the contentment with just this one breath and that should be the the whole of your striving. Maintain the mindfulness, the clarity and then as it were, strive to let go. Striving to let go is a bit of an oxymoron, as it were. What you have to do is to strive not to strive, (coughs) to find a way of circumventing and stopping This movement of the mind which does not accept what's happening but which is wanting to change it to something else due to its views, due to its perceptions, due to its idiocy basically. So we develop that contentment in the moment, the contentment with just this one breath as it's happening now. Fully accepting it, fully being with it, fully delighting in it as it were because contentment comes with delight. If you're not happy with something you want to get rid of it, destroy it, get angry with it. I don't need to go into detail but you all know my story, the two bricks in the wall. How you can learn to be content with what's not perfect. And the strange thing with that brick wall, I literally I know they're here somewhere, but I cannot find them anymore. I just don't know where they are, I've forgotten. So long I've been telling that story, I forgot to, to, I can't see them. Perhaps they weren't there in the first place. Perhaps it was just my perception. Saw a slight fault and magnified it, a hundredfold. Because that's what fault-finding mind does. Takes, as they say, a molehill and makes a mountain out of it tiny, tiny little fault (coughs) and you can't stand it any longer. Like that lady years ago, who came to see me in Magnolia Street. 14 year old girl, (coughs) had a very strong psychological problem. And father rang up and he tried all sorts of other people, psychiatrists, therapists to try and help his daughter. Her schoolwork was suffering, she was depressed, she was in a real state. So I went to see, she actually came to our temple in Magnolia Street. She sat in front of me, and I asked her what the problem was. Eventually, she told me. Her problem, she said, was her nose was too big. <coughs> this was a girl whose nose was too big. And I looked at her nose, and to me, it just looked like an ordinary nose the sort of nose you'd find on any person of that age. In fact, it had no distinguishing features at all. It had two holes in the bottom, bigger on the bottom than the top, it narrowed down to it. it was just an ordinary nose. But to her, it was ugly. And she couldn't get that perception out of her mind. It was an extreme case of wrong view. An extreme case of a person who suffered so much simply because of a thought pattern which they could not dislodge from their mind. A thought pattern which had no basis in reality, but which nevertheless she believed implicitly to her great suffering and the suffering of her parents. It's crazy, but it was true. And I can see that a fault-finding mind is what it can do. Two bad bricks, you want to destroy the whole wall. A nose slightly too big, and you want to destroy your nose or have a transplant or something. A monastery which is not quite perfect and right, that's it, I'm leaving. (laughs) All of these things you can also see in the way you watch your breath. It's not quite as you want it to be. So you want to destroy it and go somewhere else. That's called restlessness, if it creates more thoughts and wobbling of the mind. It's called sloth and torpor, if you try and escape through blanking out The awareness. It hurts too much, I don't want to experience anymore. So often that's why people sleep so much, while they go into dullness, because the world hurts, and that's their only escape. But the other escape from suffering is the one which is a true escape, which doesn't give rise to more suffering. The escape into contentment. To learn how to be content, even though there's two bad bricks in the wall, you've got a big nose. The breath is not what you want it to be. Striving to keep the mindfulness, you're content with the breath as it's happening now. Full contentment, absolute contentment. Contentment upon contentment upon contentment, moment after moment after moment. And see what happens. Because the mind isn't moving due to discontent, because there is no craving to make it any different, you'll find that the mind begins to brighten. The breath becomes the beautiful breath, not by trying to get rid of the coarse breath and look for the beautiful breath somewhere else but to look for the beauty within that coarse breath. To find that contentment within the experience you're having now. Not to try and find the contentment to the left or to the right or in the next moment or somewhere else. But to find the contentment within. Just like a stream of water which is fed from a spring within itself. The contentment is already there inside, but we have to look for it, to notice it within the moment rather than somewhere else. (coughs) So when the breath is there in the mind or whatever other object you have as your meditation object, you strive to keep the attention bright and you develop the contentment in this very moment The contentment which you know the contentment is working, that it is contentment because if it is true contentment it can lead only one way. It can lead to the brightening of the mind, the calming of the doer. The abandoning of restlessness and worry, or remorse, sorry, which is the third hindrance. The abandoning of waiapada, of ill will. Ill will is the complete opposite of contentment. The banning of karma chanda, or the desire for some other sensory experience, the abandoning <coughs> of sloth and torpor because you're still striving to be awake and aware, the abandoning of doubt. Isn't doubt a lack of contentment? Isn't it the case that when you're not happy, you start doubting? That contentment is a powerful focus which just being content with the breath happening now abolishes the five hindrances as it were at one stroke. In the contentment with this breath happening now the five hindrances disappear leaving you with a very bright, brilliant, beautiful, easy breath. The beautiful breath is the direct result of the lack of effort the lack of controlling, the lack of trying, the lack of manipulating, doing, searching, making, changing, judging. When all those things are abandoned through contentment you find this little old breath which you've been breathing in and breathing out for so many years can be the most beautiful jewel in the front of your attention, shining, shimmering, full of delight. And this breath has been there all along. It's just you didn't know how to be content with it. With that contentment, that ease, that image of the breath, the beautiful breath, will stay in front of the mind's eye (coughs) for long periods of time. Because of the hindrances being weakened, even overcome. Because the restlessness, the ill will, the (coughs) sensory desire Uh, sloth and torpor, doubt of being weakened. What is there to disturb the continuance of the attention? Samadhi is no more than a sustained attention on an object. Now in the suttas they call it one pointedness of mind. (coughs) But the description which I prefer, just from my own experience and understanding Samadhi and how it works and how it deepens and the joy of it. It's just sustained attention. How can you sustain your attention on the breath? Only without effort. Only through overcoming the hindrances. Only through letting go. And this is where you can understand the the on the surface contradictory nature of effort. Now we try so hard to sustain our attention when really that, that creates a lack of sustained attention. When we let go, develop contentment, sustained attention is there. We try so hard to meditate when really we should be letting go and being content. Then meditation becomes easy. I don't know how many of you have come to my room and I've told you, meditation is easy. And you've gone away, there goes Ajahn Brahm again, he was probably born like that. It's easy for him, yeah, but what about the rest of us? You know, he sort of must come from the moon somewhere or some other planet. Once you understand that truth, that insight, the meditation does become easy. Isn't it in the suttas? (laughs) <laughs> there comes a time when you can attain at will, with ease, these jhanas. How can you attain at will, at ease, these jhanas, they're so refined, they're so um, hard and lofty and, and Super- weird and, uh, <laughs> and supernatural. How on earth can anyone attain these things as will when it takes persons years and years and years of, of giving up, of, of eating one meal a day or sitting for hours and hours just to get their first taste of these jhanas. When you know the trick, it's easy. It's just finding that trick. And I'm teaching that trick. It's contentment. It's a natural process. Stop trying to drive that car. Sit in the back. And Just watch it happen. Develop that contentment and the breath. You know it's contentment if you get to a beautiful breath. Develop that contentment, the breath will disappear, the beauty will remain. The nimitta will come up all by itself. Be content with that nimitta. Don't try and change it, make it any different, do anything with it. Don't say wow, don't say I'm afraid. That's a sign of discontent. Just sit back. To absolutely nothing. If it comes, great, if it doesn't come, great. Completely content whatever happens. In that contentment you're building the causes, the foundations for all this process to happen by itself. That contentment, that ease, is piti pasadi sukha. The interest Calmness, tranquility, contentment builds tranquility. The ease factor of Sukha. Contentment means you are at ease with the moment, at ease with the image in the mind. You are not trying, you are not doing. Five hindrances so easily overcome through that contentment. Be careful to strive to keep the awareness. So often it can happen that because you are content to allow the awareness to disappear, you go into dullness, losing all mindfulness, all consciousness of what's happening. The nimitta, if it's there, just is dull. The mind just really doesn't know what's going on. You've zonked out because you didn't strive to keep awareness, mindfulness, attention strong, to know every moment. But once you have that contentment there, the contentment will grow stronger and stronger and limiter brighter and brighter and you just find yourself just falling in falling into a place you don't need to try and be content anymore because contentment happens as a natural course. And the contentment can even deepen within the jhanas not because you tell it to, just because it happens again as a natural course. And then you can find out how powerful, how sublime, how amazing contentment can be. Here you are taking contentment to otherworldly levels if you want to know what happiness is, true contentment, And get into a few jhanas and it will just widen your understanding of how contentment can be just amazing and so deep. When you come out afterwards, you can realize that here in this world, with this body, with this monastery, with the world outside, all going along according to its karma, cause and effect. This body going along according to dependent origination causes and effect. Objects, meetings, sense bases, (coughs) coming together with sense consciousness, creating contact and Vedana. That this is a natural course of things which you cannot control. If you have Vedana, What's they translate as feeling, it has to be sukha vedana, dukkha vedana and adukham asukham vedana. Has to be pleasant, unpleasant or in between. And it has to oscillate between those. And there is no escape from that if you're going to have vedana, if you're going to have experience. If you have a body, you're going to get sick and you're going to get healthy. And you're going to get sick again. Healthiness, health, sorry, is only the pause between sick moments. And even the sicknesses which we have. Sometimes our sickness is even one day a little less than the day before. And we feel healthy. And the next day it's worse again. Right, I have my sufferings. Stomach aches, headaches, hay fever. Hay fever because it's there most of the time. You just don't notice it. Except when you sneeze and make a mess of your robe. When you sort of have fever and feel worn out because of that hay fever. But when the hay fever gets less you feel a bit healthier. There's never full health. So many bugs and stuff in your body. So many things which are going wrong with it. I don't think it's right to call anyone healthy. <coughs> We're all just different degrees of sickness. And so this is a way. So when you can't beat them, join them. If you can't fight it and change it, be content with it. Learn from these things. This is the nature of the world. I remember when I first went to see Tanajan Ben many years ago, one of the great teachers still alive today. I still remember the talk which he gave, the first talk which he gave. He was about to, to start his Dhamma discourse and a bird, I don't know if it was an owl or some other bird, I made its sound in the distance and it interrupted him. And he said, Tanajan Ben said, see that's just the nature of birds to, to talk like that. And then he went on to this beautiful discourse about the nature of the world, the nature of you, the nature of the body, the nature of the speech which you hear from others. Today, I going back after breakfast, I heard the beautiful sound of <coughs> some birds. And it was a very delightful sound, There were very nice sounding birds, the small ones. Then I heard the voice of the crows, it was an awful sound. Nothing, then I heard the voice of myself burping, which was even worse than the crows, very similar actually, but a bit worse. You, know, re- remembered, you remember that this is just sounds, pleasant sounds, unpleasant sounds. And the things I hear from people, praise and criticism, just like the noise of the beautiful birds and then the noise of the crows. Don't blame the crows for sounding like that. Don't praise the birds, the little birds for for singing so sweetly. It's just nature. That was the fundamental uh, theme of Ajahn Ben's talk many years ago. The body makes awful sounds sometimes, it's called sickness. It makes some beautiful sounds sometimes, you feel energy. You neither praise one nor put down the other. That's wisdom. That's letting go. That's freedom. I could spend all day shouting at the crows and tell them shut up, be quiet. I could grab them by the throat and shake them and say listen here crow, if you don't shut up I'm going to do something very unmonkish to you. I might go and search or catch all the crows and take them to the vet and have their their voice boxes altered or whatever. Whatever else you can think you can do to try and get rid of the unpleasant noises but still you always get something. You can get rid of all the monks you don't like and just keep your friends. And after a while, those friends will get fed up with you and they'll become your enemies. And after a while, you just get to live by yourself. And then you become your enemy and you try and get rid of yourself. That's a tough one to do. So, just trying to control the world is so hard. That's why our striving should be to strive to be mindful, to be awake, to be alert and to learn how to be content. Content is the striving to abandon the causes of discontent. Striving to abandon the defilements, the kilesas, greed, hate and delusion. Striving to overcome craving, the causes of discontent. Striving to un- overcome uh, illusion the illusion of a self, a me, a mine. (coughs) As long as you have that illusion of a self, me or mine, there you can see, in that illusion, the true source of discontent. As long as there's an I, a me, then there's always something I want, something I'm separated from. As it says in the First Noble Truth, suffering is being separated from what you want, being with what you don't want. Basically discontent. (coughs) So that when you give up that craving you can give up discontent. When you give up the sense of me and mine there's nothing which you need, you want. Because there's no me there. And when you can give up mine this is not my body This is not my words, this is not my monastery, this is not my life. This is just a process going on. Just an empty process, no more. Only there can you get that contentment because you have literally no vested interests in what's going on. Performing your duty, doing what's asked of you, but being content. So this is a little talk this evening, I did not get on to the idipadas, perhaps another time. But a little talk on the practice of contentment as opposed to the practice of striving. In particular to point out the difference (coughs) in the uh, theme of striving to be aware to be mindful, but being content to not to do especially in one's meditation. So that's the end of the talk. Has anyone got any questions about what I've been saying this evening? Okay, would you give the... Hand man.